Hey, all you nature nerds. This is You're Gonna Die Out There. Welcome back, nature nerds. This is Jen and Megan. We're here to bring you some more wild and crazy tales from nature. This is my intro. Wow, that was great. Thank you. I really thought long and hard about that. <laughs> and then I winged it. Like a beautiful chicken. Yes. I got something super cool in the mail today. I know you have seen it. I'm currently wearing it. It is so cool that yes. you have to tell everybody because maybe they can also get one. And I'm super jelly right now because I'm so sorry. I, I should have gotten two. I made a donation. Remember way back a couple of weeks ago when I talked about the vultures at the Atlanta Zoo? A face only a mother would love. Yes. But yeah, so when I was looking at that, it was like, oh, do you want to donate? I w- was looking through the Instagram feed and it was like, hey, donate some money and you get this sweet red panda shirt and it's for fourth of july and my birthday is fourth of july so it's like it it has a little red panda on it and it says red white and cute it's an awesome shirt it's a great shirt i actually want to have a shirt and it's also the what style is it's my favorite kind raglan yeah the raglan Raglan. it's like softball shirts yes but people call them raglan now i don't know why but hers are they all that color it's blue on the sleeves and gray i think you can get different colors but i chose the blue in the sleeves because you know i like blue yeah it's yeah. it's awesome it's super cute and you know what good. happy almost birthday oh thank you very much um i bet as a kid just having your birthday on fourth of july mm-hmm. you just thought all the fireworks and everything was for you 100 percent. Well, as a parent you're like <laughs> i don't gotta do anything right you're like let's just go to this thing that someone else planned uh yeah no it was great until i went to school and i was we were talking about fourth of july and i was like oh my god that's my birthday by the way all the fireworks are for me and everyone was like you are a dum-dum <laughs> and then i I came home and I was like, why do you lie? Fourth yeah. of July is dangerous. We would always go to the lake. I had, there's two things that I recall. One is that I had the yeah. little fireworks yeah. that pop and do Are, nothing. Oh, you're talking about the just poppers, the ones you throw on the ground and they're like, Pop. no, the ones you light. Oh, I mean, come on. I'm old. Okay. Oh my God. So you actually right, light you them light and it. you throw them and they explode. <laughs> and my cousin was doing it. So I'm like, I'm going to do that. I was like seven, but they're like all the people were drinking beers yeah, and they weren't paying attention. And I was on the beach just lighting them at the lake, <laughs> of course. So I had them in my hand. I would light it and throw it and it would pop. One was short fused or something and it popped in my hand. Shut up. And my whole hand had those little um, blood blisters all over it. And I was all like, oh, I just cut it off. I don't need this hand. It was terrible. I was very upset. You just put your hand in the beer cooler? (laughs) I just held a cold beer. And then my other memory from being at the lake is my cousin. So we had fireworks. And Mm -hmm. then we're so like lake trash here. My cousin got all the bits and pieces of all the fireworks and threw them in a pit and then kind of covered it with wood and then everybody sat around to sit at the fire in the evening and they lit it and it just exploded everybody had to run away and luckily no one was injured we don't have anything to corrections but i just wanted to throw this one thing out there and Uh i've been talking to jen about it for like the last two weeks and so she's probably tired of hearing this but i just want to throw this out there listen i'm really late to watching twin peaks the return as a twin peaks fan i remember seeing it i was like oh god i don't want to like purchase showtime just to watch this it finally caught up with me and i was like all right fine i will purchase Mm -hmm. showtime so i can watch twin peaks the return you actually purchased showtime to watch that well you get a free month so i'm gonna cancel okay so i watched it and i was in like a really strange david lynch surrealist haze for like a little while yeah you were being kind of weird i'm glad it's over and i have to say that I loved season one, Twin Peaks. It was great. And then season two got a little weird, but it was still cool. And Firewalk with me, what? I don't even know. But Twin Peaks The Return? (sighs) Okay, don't hate me, but I hated it. I hated it so much. If they could just show me the last two episodes, I'd be like, okay, fine. I get it. But Mm -hmm. the rest of it was just... Confusion. Confusion. And I was like, what is happening? The whole time, I would say it out loud. What the fuck? Like out loud. Yeah. Your son's out there like, what's wrong with her? My mom's been in there saying, what the fuck? (laughs) All weekend. And I would just come out and be like, make coffee and just like (laughs) scream a bunch and then go back into the room. I, I, yeah, I don't like when watching things put you in such a funk. 
Other than that, then Megan being in a funk all weekend because she watched Twin Peaks, The, the Return. Return. We do have a bonus Patreon episode. Yes. That will be coming this week. It's for June, but it's going to be, uh, you know, end of June. We kind of put them at the end of the month. So we'll keep you guys posted on that. Would you like to hear some science news, Megan? I would very much love to hear some science news, Jen. This one is really tragic, and I'm sorry, but I'm just going to just bleh it all out there because... It's exciting. How many times is this going to happen before people learn their lesson? Let me get my soapbox ready. Hold on. Get your soapbox because we already talked about this, and our episode was called... Freaking soapbox. One of our friends actually alerted us to it a week and a half ago. So not this past weekend, but the weekend before, there was another chimpanzee attack Mm. in Pendleton, Oregon, which is about 200 miles east of Portland. There is a chimpanzee. I believe he's like 17 years old. I'm assuming because that's how long he had been living there. He, his name was Buck. He was around 200 pounds, big guy. He attacked the owner's daughter. So the Mm. owner of Buck is a 68-year-old Tamara Brogoiti, I think how you say it. B-R-O-G-O-I-T-T-I. She's 68. Her daughter is 50 and had come over. The chimpanzee got loose. It was out of his enclosure. I actually watched there's a body cam for the sheriff deputy that had to come in and and shoot him. So she called 911. When you watch the video, this was on NBC News. Oregon deputy fatally shoots chimpanzee after it bites owner's daughter. I'm sure a lot of people saw this. So there is a body cam and you can hear her 911 call. It's like in our episode when we talked about Travis the chimpanzee and Mm -hmm. I played that horrific 911 call. Yeah. She's freaking out. But I mean, it's happening right there. I mean, she's She's strapped in her car. She's seeing it. This lady, she's in the basement. She had secured herself and her daughter in the basement and called 911. But she's so calm. It's kind of chilling. She had told the 911 dispatcher, send more than one, meaning police. Yeah. Yeah. If the ape gets the drop on him, he's gone too. I've never seen anything like this. He's got to be put down. We're both locked in the basement and they have to do a headshot on the ape. Wow. They did. There's not much because this just happened and I'm sure more will come out later, but I'm sure this didn't make this officer feel very good. Sure. So he did shoot him one time in the head and Buck died. It was quick. It's so tragic. What happened is I guess he got out and maybe the adult daughter was there trying to put him back in and she sustained injuries. He bit her on her torso, arms and legs. So she was taken to the hospital afterwards and she's she's okay and she's going to oh make gosh. a full recovery, hopefully. It doesn't go into the extent of the injuries. Mm-hmm. But according to this lady, Brittany Pete with PETA, <laughs> and you know they had something to say. They said that they had warned state authorities that Tamara had created a ticking time bomb by engaging in direct contact with a dangerous ape. And now he is dead and a woman has been mauled because of her refusal to follow experts' advice and transfer Buck to an accredited sanctuary. Amen. 2010, it became Mm -hmm. illegal to have exotic pets in Oregon. But because she had had a permit prior to 2010, she fell into like... A grandfathered in Yeah, she was kind of grandfathered in. So she still continued to to keep him there. Mm. And this is what is kind of so chilling is that they had said that Buck, the chimpanzee, was really well known in the community Mm. because he would go with Tamara on errands around town and he was much smaller. And I'm sure she was like, look at this cute little chimpanzee, right? And then um, one of the local reporters said, is that Buck who got shot? They knew him by his name. Wow. Whether it was legal or not for her to be, you know, grandfathered in with this permit, it was really disturbing, especially after, and they did talk about the 2009 attack in Connecticut Mm -hmm. with Travis. They also said, since long before chimpanzee Travis ripped a woman's face off in 2009, it has been clear that attacks are inevitable so long as people continue to treat chimpanzees like chihuahuas. (laughs) Nice. Yeah. Luckily, her daughter was okay Mm -hmm. and she had told the, she, you, if you go and listen to the 911 call, like where she's very calm, she's like, if I could get my gun, I would have already shot him, but I'm in the basement and I can't get to it. So you guys have to shoot him in the head. Wow. And she'd had him for 17 years. And she didn't call him by his name. She called him an ape. She called him an ape. 
and she had raised him for his whole life. If he had been taken to an accredited sanctuary, mm-hmm. and we've also we follow a lot of them on uh, Instagram, yeah, they understand their ecology, they understand their behavior, mm-hmm. they put them with you know they are able to form bonds with other chimpanzees and yes. try to live somewhat of a normal life and not in, trapped inside a uh, some Someone's enclosure. House. So yeah. when you yeah, because when you look at the and I'm, I can't really see the whole picture, but I mean it definitely looks like kennel like. Oh, you know? yeah. That looks like a dog kennel. Yeah. I mean, it could be a big... Incl- I have no... I There's really not enough information. But anyway, people. Like, it's been over 10... Yeah. yeah over, 10 years over 10 years. Since Travis attacked Charlie Nash. Lesson already learned. Lesson already learned. They've already... And after that is when all these laws were enacted, you know, because nobody wants this to happen. I mean, I feel like even if people have a permit prior to 2010, no. still No. Sorry for the sad science news, but we covered that story and that was one of my... Obviously, this woman wasn't listening to our podcast (laughs) or she would have known to send her chimp to a sanctuary. I guarantee you she... A lot of people talked to her and she knew. Oh, yeah, yeah. But she felt like she could do a better job. So I I hope her daughter's okay. Her daughter is super lucky. All the other maulings, it was like face and hands. Oh, for sure. And she just got bites on her torso and and like extremities. Yeah. But getting bit by a 200-pound chimpanzee, I mean, I I have no idea how bad her injury. I mean, they could be terrible, like chunks of her missing. For sure. Sorry to bring it down, but that was... Come my on, science Jane. news but other than that happy world sea turtle day last week yay! yay we love sea turtles everybody knows that so They're pretty sweet anyway so i'm excited for your story today megan i'm kind of excited to tell it there's some sad parts there's always some sad parts aren't there but hopefully uplifting in the end right that's what we're going for let me just give you some places where i got my references today for funsies i got something from outside online uh the dailymail.co.uk we love the outside online norman Olastad.com. Okay. Uh, ABC News, LA Times, a podcast episode for the BBC called I Was the Sole Survivor of a Plane Crash. Oh, wow. I wonder what you're going to talk about today. <laughs> I mean, I don't want to give it away or anything. But you just did. Spoiler but alert. I did. And then I got some information from the Forest Service on the San Gabriel Mountains National Park. How was that podcast? Oh, it was good. I mean, it was the BBC, Jen. Well, BBC, I mean, come on. <laughs> So I'm so waiting good. for them to call us any day. I mean, really. And be like, look. Hello, we're, we're the BBC. <laughs> <laughs> Please never do that again. <laughs> All right. So today's story is going to be about Norman Olestad. Norman was born May 30th, 1967. Oh, he's a year younger than my sister. His parents were Norman and Doris Olestad. So he is Norman Olestad Jr. And they divorced when Norman Jr. was three years old. Bummer. Um, his mom moved to the Palisades and eventually got a boyfriend who was a real asshat. Uh, mm. I think his name was Nick. And Norman, when he was staying there with his mom, he would run away to like the forest and stuff with his dog, Sonny, or go see his, his unofficial godmother, Eleanor Kendall, go surfing, hiking, whatever, to get away from the house because this guy was a real asshat. Oh, but wow. luckily, that's the only amount that I'm going to talk about Nick the asshat. He's not very pivotal to this story at all. So. That's good. Um, he did split some time between his mom and his dad. His dad lived in this place in Malibu called Topanga Beach. And it's actually a nude beach in Malibu. I don't know if it's nude anymore, but at the time it was. And it was like basically a bunch of hippies like living there on the beach, going surfing all the time, and just hanging out and having a good time. It was like kind of an adult atmosphere. Wait, was Senior like into the nude beach? Is that why he lived there? I think he liked the lifestyle. Yeah. A friend of mine, I've talked about her, Candace. Oh, we, no. <laughs> we accidentally went to a beach on uh-huh. Big Island in Hawaii. Oh. In Hilo. Yeah. Somebody was like, yeah, there's a beach over there. And we went to it and everybody was naked. We sat there and just like took it all in for a while because it was a lot. It was a lot happening. We had to just stop and watch this guy like playing frisbee. What? Just running. Flop, 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 flop. <laughs> it was a lot. And then there was like a very older elderly gentleman doing some calisthenics <laughs> right nearby. Candace, if you're listening, <laughs> she's laughing for sure right That's now. That's so great. But you know, everybody, hey, do your thing. You're in a safe place there. Mm-hmm. And we weren't judging. We were just like, wow, this is so interesting. Maybe this is too much information. It's like, I don't think I could ever go naked. But then I remembered that, no, oh, yeah. I have been topless. Oh, yeah. Just it's it part of culture. the culture. Yeah. And they were like, I went topless this. once, but I had so many flower lays on <laughs> that you couldn't see anything. It was like a shirt. It was basically a flower shirt. <laughs> anyway, okay. So where was I? 
Uh, Norman Olestad Sr. Okay. They live on this nude beach. He's into it. So let me tell you some fun facts about Norman Olestad Sr. He was a child actor in the movie Cheaper by the Dozen, the original one. Rad. In like the 50s. Yeah. He later joined the FBI. Super random. But he did not like J. Edgar Hoover. Oh. Because that's the time period he was there at the FBI. And he wrote a book called inside the FBI, which got a lot of people got really upset about. And I could not find any more information about Norman Olestad Sr. And I'm like, what? No, because he sounds super interesting. Yeah, he sounds super different. Huh. He eventually, um, I guess, left the FBI, became a lawyer, and he just surfed and worked as a lawyer in Malibu and lived at Topanga Beach. It's considered a hippie enclave at the time. And just It's like late 60s, early 70s. Just hung around Nakey. Just hung around Nakey. And he had the son. Norman Sr. was like really into surfing and really into like kind of extreme sports. Mm-hmm. At the time would be extreme, like skiing and surfing were extreme. <laughs> like, they were, you know, right. by the time Norman Jr. was three, his mm-hmm. dad had been putting him into competitive surfing and downhill skiing, like surfing and skiing at three years old, Jen. Wow. And there's pictures of him as like a baby, baby, like surfing with his dad on his back and stuff like he was. So his dad was like always pushing him. And he actually nicknamed him a couple different nicknames. But one that kind of stuck was Boy Wonder. And in the BBC podcast, they're like, oh, it's kind of like Batman and Robin, the Boy Wonder, you know, mm-hmm. like, it's just like sidekick. Some people said in some different articles said that, oh, Norman Sr. was trying to live vicariously through his son by making him do all these sports that were maybe more dangerous for a kid. But later in life, Norman Jr. would talk about that. Yeah, when he was a kid, he was like really frustrated with his dad. He was like, screw this. Like, why do you make me do all these sports? And really, he, re- he resented it. But then he realized that it was actually a gift that his dad had given him. Most kids would be into it. Well, okay. His like being put into sports and things, it wasn't like, oh, you're going to go have a soccer game every other Saturday, that kind of thing. It Mm -hmm. was like every weekend he would wake up at the crack of dawn and he would take him out surfing by like nine o'clock when most kids are waking up. Like think about our kids, right? Oh Lord, yeah. Nine o'clock, he would be up the side of a mountain. Wow. That they would be skiing down. Yeah. And it's like, he's not even eight yet. His dad was like, no, you have to train hard for this. You're going to appreciate learning these skills so that you can live your life out in the world because if you don't do it now you know it's going to be hard Mm -hmm. to teach you as you get older his childhood looked really different from other kids childhoods that he had like long blonde hair and this is in the early 70s right so that part's not so different but that he went to school in the palisades and so his dad would drive him from their home and then up to the palisades and the palisades was like kind of this white picket fence super cookie cutter type neighborhood in comparison to his nudist colony (laughs) and he was like living i don't think it's a nudist colony but hippie enclave he would talk about how they would be in his dad's old car and they would be driving up to i think it was like a porsche some like kind of old Porsche and they would drive up to his school and his dad would be brushing his teeth with no shirt on in the car, you know, <laughs> and like he's like getting out and going to school. And the other kids are like their moms are dropping them off, you know. I mean I mean, I don't think minivans at the time, but like what station wagon. Station wagon. There we go. Oh yeah. With a backward facing seat. That's kind of how he he realized that he was like living in this different world from these other kids who had the kind of co- cookie cutter existence where their parents didn't take them up the side of a mountain mm-hmm. in Utah during a storm so they could go ski down the side so yeah they did a lot of backcountry skiing the reason they would go in storms his dad said is he would almost like try to take him when it was really stormy i don't know a lot about skiing but apparently that's like when the best powder is like the snow is just falling or whatever like snowstorms right and he would tell him this is the best way to get the best powder and there was actually this incident that happened when he was i think he was like nine or something where he might have been younger But anyway, he was skiing down the side of this mountain. He ended up falling into a tree well. Do you know what tree wells are? No. I didn't know what this was either. So apparently when it snows and there are trees up on the mountain, the snow kind of like piles up, but then uh, sometimes it will melt a little and then more snow will pile up. So there's like kind of this cavity almost next to the side of the tree. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. They call them tree wells. Uh, So yeah, they were skiing. It was snowing and stormy and they were going down this like smaller ridge and he said he goes over the north side and suddenly he was hanging upside down in the tree well caught on the edges of it so it's like kind of like a hole Mm -hmm. and his skis are caught 
the front and back of his skis are just kind of like got him stuck in the hole. Oh my gosh. And so he's yelling for his dad and his dad comes and pulls him out. And it's like a super dangerous situation. And yeah, again, we're talking about under 10 years old. And they're up on this like crazy part of the mountain anyway. And his dad was like, listen, that's just part of this road. You know, it's really important for you you to be able to deal with these problems. He's teaching him some survival skills. Yeah. At like a super young age. Yeah. So Norman, obviously, through all of these trials that he did with his dad, like every weekend, mm-hmm. every weekend, surfing, hiking, skiing, some kind of activity was going right. on. He ended up being a really great athlete. So he did lots of sports, hockey, skiing, football, all the things. Mm-hmm. And when he was 10 years old, he talks about this one visit. That I kind of like this story where he went to see his grandparents. So his dad's parents lived in Puerto Vallarta. Puerto Vallarta. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they actually had to drive a few days to get to the house. So they took a ferry over and then they had to take this like car and it was all these back roads and it took mm-hmm. them like three or four days and they only had like a certain amount of water and then the car got stuck and it was this whole adventure. Like basically everything he did with his dad was an adventure. In Puerto Vallarta? Yeah. Huh. I I've been there. I don't know where. I, I remember you saying that. Yes. I was like, I know Jen will know how to say this. Well, yeah, Puerto I've been there and it's lovely. I, I guess mean, this was off the beaten path. This was a long time ago. Yeah. And I think that there's many parts of it that as a tourist, you don't see. Right, right, right. So yeah. they probably went to. They eventually get to his grandparents' house and they find the secret surf spot. And when he was 10, that's when he rode his first tube. His first like, I'm assuming this is, you know, like when surfers go into the tube right. of the wave. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. That oh, thing. nice. Which is, that's, that's like the, goal. the thing. That's Yeah. It, yeah. Anyway, he did say this about his life growing up with his dad. You know, I wanted to play with kids. So all of these times I was off skiing, I was always thinking, God, there's a birthday party this weekend, or I could just be hanging out watching TV with my buddies, you know, riding a bike, all these simple things. My dad could not understand that. He wanted me to live life. Wow. I mean, I'm sure from his point of view, yeah, as a kid, Mm -hmm. being forced to do it. But I feel like, I don't know, I think it's pretty cool. I mean, that's some investment into your kid. For sure. I, I think about that, man, my kid spends a lot of time on devices. When I was a kid, I spent a lot of time outside and I was doing dangerous things, but my mom, my dad were not a part of them. You know, it was no, just like because ne- they were like, kids. just come home before dark. Yeah. Well, but we to have what you're doing. It's so interesting to think about what it would be like to have a parent who was like right there teaching you something that they knew how to do. That's what I mean. I think it's it's really cool and different. It makes me want to teach my kid how to roller skate, <laughs> even though he hates it. He really hates it. All of these things that he's learned through these life lessons his dad is teaching him, all the sports he's been doing, they kind of help him out in this next part of the story I'm going to tell you about. Okay. And this is the incident. Da, da, da. So February 19, 1979, Norman Jr. is 11. His father, Norman Sr., charters a small plane to fly over the San Gabriel Mountains to Big Bear because Norman Jr. won an award. And it says that there's like two different things it says. In one, I read that he won some kind of junior U.S. ski team award. And the other, I read that he was collecting a trophy that he had gotten for winning the Southern California Slalom Skiing Championship. Oh. For like, I guess his age group or whatever. Yeah. Either way. Either way, he's like a freaking athlete at 11. Mm -hmm. And my kid's like, I don't want to walk all the way to the mailbox. (laughs) Anyway, they chartered this plane. And a lot of this story, I mean, I couldn't help but like draw parallels in my brain to the story that you told about Julianne Culp. Just like... That's the same time frame too. Right? And that her parents were really involved. Oh, yeah. You know, like that kind of stuff. They were very unique, different, the way Mm -hmm. they lived their lives, the way they raised her. Yeah, I just kept thinking about that story while I was reading this. His dad charters this four-seater plane. So it's like really small. Mm -hmm. It's kind of an overcast day, but like not super horrible. His uh, his dad, Norman Sr., asked the pilot how the weather was. And the pilot's like, oh, it's fine. No worries. So they get on the plane. Norman Jr. is sitting in the co-pilot seat. And then Norman Sr.'s girlfriend, Sandra, Sandra Cressman, is in the back with Norman Sr. Norman Sr. is sitting behind Norman Jr. Okay, that's cool. They gave him the co-pilot seat yeah. so he can like see everything right? and wear the cool headphones. And, and he got to wear, yeah, he got to wear the little headset and yeah. he can hear everything that's happening. And he's kind of like in the BBC story, he kind of recounts like, yeah, I could hear all the things they were saying. It was like a bunch of jargon, but like uh, it was kind of cool. Mm-hmm. Like sitting up there, I'm like, mm, I'm the co-pilot, you know. The pilot is communicating with the towers about the weather ahead. They're talking about, and like I said, he couldn't really understand how they were talking about it, but he could tell from the tone of voice and the kind of 
agitation that the pilot had that the weather was not good. Oh. And it was worse than maybe he thought it was. So it starts getting like really cloudy now. Mm -hmm. And then they're like in the clouds. He can feel he's looking at the pilot. The pilot is like frantically switching switches and things and, you know, knobs and turning dials. And he's like, shit. He's like, I changed my mind. I don't want to be your co-pilot anymore. (laughs) This is a bad idea. As they're going through this cloud, he then realizes that it's actually snowing inside the cloud that oh, they're in. No. So it's like all around them. They snowstorm went, they like just a blizzard. flew into the weather. Yeah. And then Norman sees something flash below this like green flash. Uh, and then he sees another one. And then he sees it right next to his window. And it's it's a tree. <gasps> they're trees. And he turns and he yells to his dad behind him, watch out. And then there are three thuds. Dun, 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 and he passes out. He said it kind of rams into his body and then he's out. So they had crashed into a place called Ontario Peak, which is 8,693 feet high or 2,650 meters. There we go. Ontario Peak is one of 25 peaks in the San Gabriel Mountains. And the San Gabriel Mountains is the eighth Forest Service National Monument since October 10th, 2014, when President Barack Obama designated 346,177 acre area as a national monument. What? what? Thanks, Obama. Thank you, Obama. <laughs> so it provides a third of Los Angeles's drinking water. More than 4 million people visit it each year. And there are over 600 archaeological sites in that wow. area. Kind of cool. And I only threw this in because it made me think of Bill and Ted. But the San Dimas Experimental Forest <laughs> oh, nice. was established there in 1933. And it contains some of the earliest and longest records from continuously monitored experimental watersheds in the U.S., I thought that was kind of cool because I once got to work in the Hitchity Experimental Forest in Georgia, and it's it's kind of neat. They yeah. do all different kinds of things there. That's really cool. Yeah. So it must be easy to get to, easily accessible, I, at least yeah. that part, yeah, I guess. Yeah, at least that part. Probably For not sure. where they crashed, though. Not where they crashed. Okay. Wasn't San Dimas the high school? It was school? the high school. Mm-hmm. Okay, good. And that was, was filmed in Arizona. What? And near where I went to, I went to high school there for a year. And this friend, a really good friend of mine, she was an extra in it. So if you, whenever I see it, I can see that. Shut up. Yeah. I love that movie. So the San Gabriel Mountains are fault block mountains. And I had to go look this up because I know nothing about plate tectonics. I mean, I know a little, but not a lot. Mm-hmm. So instead of the earth kind of folding over, like, you know how like maybe a plate will come up and then the other plate will go over the top of it and it creates a mountain. Yeah. Uh, instead of that happening, it's basically the plates are cracking apart, kind of jutting around. So a lot of times there'll be like one side of the mountain that's like kind of really sheer. And then mm. the back side of the mountain is more slopey. Okay, I got you. Yeah, it looks really blocky or chunky. So they call it fault block. The San Gabriel Mountain Range has LA to the southwest and the Mojave Desert to the northeast and then the San Joaquin Valley to the northwest. And then the San Andreas Fault also cuts through the range and makes a lot of these like long, straight, narrow valleys and canyons. Basically, part of this will be like when California finally falls off the side of the US. That will be what's left. That will be, yeah. It'll it, break off there. Part of the, yeah, part of the San Gabriel Mountains will go into the ocean and the other part will stay. Perfect. I'm sure everybody <laughs> loves to hear that. Sorry. Just kidding, California. It's never going to happen. Sure. <laughs> be possible. Uh, so that area where the San Andreas Fault is, is called the Rift Zone. Like, don't ever go there. Let's stay out of that Rift Zone. Uh, the San Gabriel River is fed from all the snow and ice that melts from from the peaks in the range. And like I said, there are 25 listed peaks. The shortest peak is 3,210 feet or 980 meters high. It's called Echo Mountain. And the highest peak is Mount San Antonio or Mount Baldy. Uh, and that is 10,064 feet or 3,068 meters. But could it have been somebody's name who found it? I like when we talked was. about your climbing episode, remember right? it was like they yeah. always got named after the first person who was like, I claim oh, this it, as yeah. Mount Jen. <laughs> blah, blah, blah. Uh, yeah 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 which that was a patreon episode jen oh but it's fine we did a climbing episode in the patreon and i think it was good so (laughs) (laughs) the kind of sad part about the san gabriel mountains is that the erosion rates are super high Mm -hmm. and a lot of that has to do with the accelerated and increased frequency of wildfires in the 1900s it's not super clear if soil and brush ecosystems in the San Gabriel Mountains will continue to reestablish soil and vegetation after so many fires, or if the increasing fire frequencies and erosion will strip the soils and permanently alter the soil cover and vegetation types across 
this mountain ecosystem. So not looking super good for the San Gabriel Mountain vegetation. That's a bummer. Yeah. I'm going to talk about some flora and fauna here. Uh, Currently, there are lots of pine, fir, cedar, and oak that are above 5,000 feet. Uh, There's a willow, alder, and cottonwood that are more in the like streamy areas. Mm -hmm. Then there's dense shrub, brush, and small trees at the lower elevations, probably in the more deserty places. Did you read the Britannica again? Megan? I did not read the Britannica again. Okay, this was just totally checking. For, this is actually from the Forest Service. Oh, I like stole okay. a bunch of this from okay. the Forest Service. Okay. So that dense shrub brush and small tree area is called chaparral. Chaparral. Yeah. So I guess it's highly adapted to fire. Like it's a quickly recovers after fires. Correct. There is a subspecies of the leather oak, which I had never heard of a leather oak before. Sounds badass. I know. It's just like out there with like black leather on. It's all like, <laughs> seriously, some leather boots. Sunglasses. There's a bunch of chains. It's like really into bondage and stuff. (laughs) Some sweet pomade hair. So yeah, this leather oak is found only in the San Gabriel Mountains. And then the rift zone that we talked about where at the San Andreas Fault has lots of springs, sag ponds, and wetland areas. And those are critical habitat for a variety of native species. It said critical habitat. And then later in another thing from the Forest Service, it said crucial habitat. And I was like, well, the Forest Service would definitely use the word critical if it were critical habitat. It's not designated critical Correct. habitat, which I is don't a different think, thing. Yes. I yes. don't think it's uh, like, yeah, designated, but yeah. I think it's crucial yes. for some unique and rare wildlife, including the California condor, All the right. spotted owl, bighorn sheep, and 1,000-year-old limber pines. There are some other large animals in this area, including the California mule deer, California black bear, San Pedro martyr coyote, and the rarely seen mountain lion or cougar. Okay. Can I just say real quick that yes. we need to do a we episode need to do on, an episode on yeah. mountain lions. Ever since I saw that TikTok or whatever, and that guy was like just sitting oh, on yeah. the side of the mountain, and he's like, what? Yeah. And my daughter has a special oh, request. Right. She did. Uh, there are some smaller mammals, including raccoons, opossums, thank you very much, mm-hmm. skunk, and bobcats. And then rattlesnakes are common. Um, oh, boy. Fun. Hawks are very common, but there are golden and bald eagles, but they're more rare. It's beautiful. I saw a golden eagle up close with a raptor guy. What do, What are they called? <laughs> don't they have a name? A raptorist? I don't know if that's right. <laughs> I just want to throw in there, Jen, too, that whenever you hear, like, if they show the picture of, of an eagle, nine times out of ten, the call that they're playing is like a red-tailed hawk. And that drives me insane. They're just trying to make eagles look cooler. I'm sorry that happens to you. (laughs) Hello, friends. We're back. (laughs) And just so you know, we looked it up, Noah. It's a falconer. I have held large raptors before and really tiny raptors. What about large falcons? I have never held a falcon. Okay. (laughs) Well, it's called falconry. How can you be a raptorist? That should be a new designation of some kind of bird or dinosaur handler, whatever. If you get a job at Jurassic Park, Jen. I'm the lead raptorist. Now that we know pretty much everything we can know about the San Gabriel Mountains. So much. I'm going to call up the San Dimas Experimental Forest (laughs) and be like, listen. Look, I'm a professional raptorist. (laughs) So that's our information about the San San Gabriel Mountains. All right. So we're going to return to our plane on the side of Ontario Peak. There was some loud thumps. Yeah. The last we remember is that there were three loud thumps, and then Norman Jr. is lights out. Next thing he knows, he wakes up. He's tilted sideways. He starts yelling for help because his seatbelt is choking off of off his air. He's kind of like hanging into his seatbelt. He said he was, look, he was really close to the controls, you know, like the front part of the airplane. It was like super close to his face. Mm-hmm. And then there was a ripped metal above him, and snow was falling through the ripped metal. Oh, my gosh. He realizes that they're on a really steep, mountain slope so in one of the accounts it's at like 45 degree angle (gasps) and how old he's 11 yeah some accounts are like oh they're at like 8200 feet or 8600 feet some say like 9000 i think there's rounding up but basically they're at the top of ontario peak everyone in the plane had been wearing just like regular clothes for the day because they're just flying it's like a 30 minute flight over the tops of these mountains Mm -hmm. to go to big bear so it was just like he was wearing I think some pants and like maybe a dress shirt or something because it was like a a little ceremony for the award. Right, yeah. Uh, But no gloves, no hat, no scarf, no sweater, nothing like that. Yeah, it's LA. Yeah, exactly. You don't have those things. (laughs) It's just like, yeah. But he was wearing a pair of Vans sneakers that were still on his feet. There we go. Finally. Both of them. 
both of his van sneakers. Oh. So now we know what to wear. Van Emergency sneakers. preparedness kit, van Done. sneakers. He heard Sandra making kind of a moaning noise from Caddy Corner behind him, mm-hmm. right? And he wanted to kind of get back to her, so he actually was able to unhook his seatbelt and then. But he had he knew that the plane was like teetering. So he had to really gingerly kind of walk through the plane to get to her to see what was going on. On his way, he sees the pilot. The pilot's face is mangled. And he says he actually kind of blocked out what it looked like. He just knows that guy, he was dead. Like no doubt. Like no doubt. Um, He can see that it's snowing pretty bad outside of the plane onto the side of the mountain. And he can also see that the wing is kind of like positioned in a way that they could go up to where the wing is and they could sit underneath it and it would be kind of like a shelter. But he would be like, they would be on the mountain under the wing and that would be safer than where they were, which was, you know, still inside the the fuselage. He goes over to where the wing is and he actually pulled bits of carpet from the plane to make a makeshift shelter. And he kind of puts it underneath there. And he knew his dad was behind his seat. And so he kind of went back to see where what was going on with his dad. And he said his dad's chest was resting on his knees um, in kind of a weird way. Ooh. Like he's bent over, mm-hmm. you know, and he was trying, he tried to like kind of gingerly shake him and talk to him. And he was telling him, you know, dad, you need to wake up. You need to wake up. And his dad felt sort of warm. So he thought maybe he's still alive. Mm-hmm. Like he's still alive. It's cool. And he tried to actually move him, but his dad was too heavy uh-huh. for him to get out of the plane. So he had actually pulled Sandra out and put her under the makeshift thing and she had a dislocated shoulder he was like one of her shoulders was lower than the other and she had a real bad gash in her head and she was disoriented and kind of panicking yeah yeah concussed for sure so he had like put her up at the shelter part and then you know tried to get his dad and he couldn't and he was like okay and then he heard a helicopter he heard like the of a helicopter because you remember the pilot was on the radio telling them where he was like hey we're here this Mm -hmm. is where we are you know we're crashing whatever and so they kind of knew the location he can actually see the pilot of the helicopter and he's screaming and he's waving his hands in the air and he's jumping up and down and the helicopter pilot doesn't see him. Oh, no. Yeah. And it, he's like, he was right over my head. I could see him. Ugh. I guess the maybe the snow was too bad. It was like mm-hmm. blizzard conditions were kind I'm of I'm surprised the up. helicopter would even be able to. Venture. Yeah. Because yeah, usually if any kind of bad weather, a helicopter wouldn't right? go. Right. Well, and the helicopter, you know, hovers there for like a minute or two and then leaves. And he's like, okay, no one is coming after this. He can see many, many, many feet below that there is a top of a roof really far below them and a meadow next to the roof because the snow doesn't happen until what like 4,000 feet up so he can see really far down he's like okay and remember he's been on mountains kind of similar to this in these conditions before because his dad would take him right I mean not this probably not 45 degree angle like I don't think it's that bad but it's like he's kind of used to this situation like, okay. He's been on a lot of mountains and a lot of snow lot of and in bad weather. Yeah. And so he thinks, okay, I'm just going to head towards the top of that roof and I'm going to make it to the meadow. And then I know exactly where I need to go from where I am now to get to that, that mm-hmm. house structure. Mm-hmm. He went back to Sandra and he's like, Sandra, this is the deal. We're going down the mountain. And she's super out of it. And he's like, we can't stay the night. It's going to be night soon. It'll get dark. It'll get too cold and we'll die. Like, it's going to be too cold for us to stay up here. We don't have any warmth. Like, we have to go down the mountain. So he actually went back over to where his dad was and told him, told his dad, we're going to go get help. But he didn't realize that he's talking to his dad, but his dad is already dead. Like, they say on impact, he died. So him and the pilot are already passed away. So, but he went over and he's like, yeah, I just told him, don't worry, we're going to go get help. We're going down the mountain. okay i know how to do this whether he knew his dad was dead or not it just made him feel better to tell his dad yeah what he was gonna do yes to feel like he's like okay i got this yeah and so they start to go down and it's like i said below the plane there's kind of like 
this, uh, I forget how he said it, but it was basically like he could see a trail a little bit. It's like there's certain kinds of snow, right? And he knows there's like, there's a more malleable snow that he can grip onto. And then there's Mm -hmm. more like ice snow that he doesn't want to get near. Oh, yeah. So he's looking at that and he's like, okay, there's this kind of path. He can see which one he needs to take, the more malleable snow. That's amazing. Yeah. So he actually turns around and he's going down the mountain, like his face into the mountain, hands gripping on these are bare hands in the snow gripping onto the snow and ice to go down and sandra he actually had sandra put her feet on his shoulders and head kind of and Uh he would guide them down she was just kind of sliding along with him and he knew there was like this balance between climbing down and like gaining too much momentum Mm. and so he actually had gotten these sticks and would use those, he had like broke them off a tree and he was using them as kind of like poles Oh, going down kind of to slow their momentum yeah. as they're going. And he's having to grip into things and hold on to these sticks and his skin actually starts coming off of his hands because of his fingertips from like the first knuckle up. Well, I guess the good thing is, is it, it's probably so numb, he doesn't feel it. He said he had kind of an instinctual feeling while he was going down the mountain And he used all this knowledge that his dad had bestowed upon him, all those ski trips and everything to move them down. As they were working their way down, he remembers looking back up to the plane when they were like kind of leaving that area. They couldn't start not to be able to see the plane anymore. He could Mm -hmm. see his dad still sitting there covered in frost and snow. He looked kind of frosted over. Sandra was not with it at all. She's having a hard time staying upright. And she has to stay upright because... If she starts to move one way or the other, you know, he's got to adjust to that. And that's going to change their momentum moving down this very steep Mm -hmm. slope. And actually, she ends up toppling over her upper body kind of sliding down. And he tries to get back under her and grab her, but he's too late. And she just slides down this like very, very steep slope. And she's calling out to him and she falls away into, he says, it's like the fog. Oh my gosh. He's 11. He's 11. How could he even hold a grown ass woman? He's like really worried about her. And he goes actually down the ple- like path that she went down. Uh-huh. Um, slowly gets down there. He found her and she had actually her fall had been broken by a bunch of trees. And she was in real bad shape. Oh, like now no. she's even worse than she was. And he wasn't really sure what was going on with her. He like sat there with her. He was waiting for her to wake up. And he's like, okay, I can't wait any longer. I have to continue to go down. And he put a bunch of pine branches over her. Oh, bless. To like keep her warm. Mm-hmm. At this point, he, like once he was kind of down where she was, he was able to turn around and sit on his butt. And kind of uh, scoot down because it wasn't as steep. And then instead of using the sticks that he had, so he says he can't remember if he had the same sticks or if he switched them out with new sticks. When he was able to turn around, then he used the sticks more like ski poles. And he remembers that his dad had told him, and again, I just can't stop making these parallels, but his dad had said like, Follow the way that you think the water would go. Oh my gosh. Yeah, it <laughs> and is. And I was like, what the hell? This is such it's a exactly crazy- like yeah. uh, Julianne Cope because they said, follow the river and you'll always come find people. Yes. Yeah. And he can tell that he's getting closer to the rooftop. Though if he just follows the way the water would go, he's going to make it to that rooftop. Mm-hmm. And he can see it now. The To his left is the open meadow. And he knew exactly where the cabin was from there. And he was able to stand up. And he stands up. This is the first time he feels his body relax. And he just has this moment of crazy raw emotion. Oh. Where just like everything. I think this is probably shock. Yes. He's no longer having to brace himself and kind of like strategically fall down the side of this mountain Mm -hmm. anymore. So it's like he doesn't have to tense every muscle in his body. He can stand up and kind of like breathe and he's on solid ground. And then he just like loses his shit. And he felt all these emotions and he just started thinking about his dad up on the mountain and that he probably was dead. Like it kind of hit him and he calls out, just kind of yells out like, hello, you know, and then someone actually answers him (gasps) from the meadow. Yeah. And he followed the voice and kind of like, hello, hello, like Marco Polo it. And this dog comes running up and there is this boy, a teen boy, his name is Glenn. And he's like, were you in the airplane crash? And he's like, yeah, that was that was me. I was in the airplane crash. Like, 
<laughs> and Glenn picks him up Aww. and carries him down the road. And as they're walking down the road, he looks back up at the mountain and he sees the clouds and he's thinking about his dad. And he actually, I don't know if he says it out loud, but he says he thanks his dad at that moment. Like, thank you for teaching me. And he remembers that there was like, as he was climbing down, there was like a spot where there were flat rocks and he like laid down on the flat rocks and he could hear his dad's voice in his head, like, get up. Like, you have to keep going. You can never give up. Oh, I know. This is like a hallmark. It is. Like, sad, sad movie, Megan. I'm sorry. Jeez. So Glenn, um, his last name is Chapman, and he takes Norman to his house, um, the Chapman's ranch. And they had him sit next to this potbelly stove, and he's sitting in a rocking chair, and he's got cuts and scrapes all over him. And, like, his fingers are just raw, like, ripped off skin. And, and Glenn's mom, Pat, she comes and brings him some hot cocoa. And she, he said she was kind and calming and... She told Norman that she had heard something that sounded like a crash and she had called the sheriff, but the sheriff was like, oh, we don't think it's anything. (laughs) And he said he's drinking the hot cup of uh, cocoa and he looks at his right hand and it's swollen with it almost looks like a golf ball is inside his hand and he's having a hard time gripping. He starts thinking that he's actually there drinking, you know, like in this warm place and safe now because of all the things his dad had pushed him to do. For the first 11 years of his life, because again, he's 11. Anyway, Pat gets them, gets him to a hospital. They, you know, get him some help. He gets to the hospital. Uh, That's when he found out that all three of the other passengers had died. So did they go back and they found the girlfriend, the dad's girlfriend? And she was not alive. Oh, no. She had died from the fall. (gasps) Yeah. Well, I wondered, I mean, being like having a concussion, it seems like, and being as disoriented as she was and trying to make it down a mountain ain't happening. But if she stayed up there, she would have froze. It's like one or the other. I think she was kind of I mean, they had to try. And he really tried. I, the way he, even, man, when he, talks about it he's an adult now Mm -hmm. obviously survived and he's like really emotional about he still feels like every emotion of that day so like he was like hey this lady and there and so they went back so as soon as he got rescued they all like they went up yeah and they were able to get remains at the hospital he gets stitched up and the doctor's looking at him and he's like man what do you want we'll get you anything anything you want And Norman had never really eaten sugar. So I guess his dad and his dad's mom were like, quote, health nuts. And they were hippies. Hippies, yeah. So they never had sugar, processed sugar. And he was like, I just want a chocolate milkshake. That's amazing. I'm surprised he would want something cold. I know. (laughs) He's like, I want a chocolate milkshake. And the hospital was like, you got it. Here it comes. Get you. We'll get you a chocolate milkshake. And he says he's he loved it. He was like drinking. He was like the best super into it. Yeah. Yeah. That's where you can see he's a kid. Exactly. Yes. That he's totally, he's just this kid. Mm-hmm. And they interview him after. There's actually, you can go on YouTube and see the video of him talking about, you know, my dad was just telling me that I had to keep going. And he, he always told me never give up. And so I just did. And it's like he's talking and he doesn't seem like an 11 year old. It's like if his voice weren't such a high voice, like a kid voice, you wouldn't know he was a kid. After the funeral for his dad, he went to live with his mom full time and her boyfriend, that jerk face in the Palisades. Actually, six months after this whole thing, he turned 12 years old. And he started to develop these weird fears. Like he had full on PTSD. Oh, of course. It was that time when people didn't go to the therapist. It wasn't like if you went to the therapist, you were crazy. Like that's when you're Mm -hmm. getting committed. So Mm -hmm. he started developing these weird fears where he couldn't be in the dark and he couldn't watch movies or TV shows that didn't end with something really happy. He just couldn't function in the way that he had functioned before. And he didn't, he wasn't skiing. He wasn't surfing. He wasn't doing any of those things that he used to do. He was completely disinterested. PTSD and just grief. And he became super introverted and really down. And he wasn't making connections anymore with people. He got super angry and emotional. And I'm sure it did not help that his mom's boyfriend was a real dick face Mm -hmm. to him. He was, I guess, kind of a drinker and would, I don't know if he would abuse. It's like says that he would hit him or they would get into arguments or like physical altercations. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, it was domestic abuse like what's going on but it's no one really like comes out and says it in any of the articles they're just like he's a real douchebag he felt like he had to get out all of this tension somehow so he would almost pick fights with people to get in physical fights with other people so his granddad actually came up from 
Puerto Vallarta. That's the dad's dad? The dad's dad, okay. yeah. Came up to see him and took him to the beach at Topanga Beach. Uh-huh. I don't know if he gave him a pep talk or what happened, but basically on this trip, he says he got back into surfing because he got a job at this like diner or something across the street from the beach. Mm-hmm. He uh, ran into a friend of his while he was at this job. And his friend was like, man, let's you, let's go hit the waves. Like, let's go. Let's go surfing. And so he went out. And good God, when he talks about this moment that he re- was reintroduced to surfing, he's like full on. I was like crying with him. He was like, you know, just being on the waves and getting back out there. And his voice cracks. And you're just like, oh, God. Yeah. <laughs> and I don't know how old he was at this point, if he was 14, 15, because he's getting a job. So he, I think he would have had to have been like 14 or 15 to get a job, right? You couldn't get a job at like 12 or 13. Yeah, 15. Yeah. Probably 15, 16. He's listening to some Boy George, some Duran Duran. For sure. Totally just like, <laughs> I'm going to go surf. But yeah, he says once he got on the board and just the smell and the salt and everything, um, and he got back in touch with the thing that he really loved and the thing that his dad loved, that was the beginning. That was like the moment that everything started turning around for him. It gave him something to believe in again. And he had a board that was his dad's and it was in his mom's garage up in like the rafters or whatever. That day he like goes home and he gets it out. And he's like, from then on, after work every day, he would go surf and he got back into it and it was great there's i mean the kind of he skips over the middle part where he like meets someone and gets married and at 33 (laughs) those things happen yeah it's like then life happens he's just like has a life yes (laughs) he's no longer angsty i mean he does he does say that he did go to therapy i think in his late 20s and so yeah when he was 33 he had his first child a boy named noah yeah, we know a boy named Noah. Hey, Noah. Uh, so he would take his son on the same kind of adventures as his dad, just not in the same way. Mm-hmm. So he's like, yeah, these life adventures are really important, but he wouldn't push his kid to do more than he was willing to do. So he'd still take him. They went to the same ski spots, surf spots that he learned from his dad. And when his boy Noah was six, uh, they were driving the car. Mm-hmm. He was like, Dad, tell me about the adventures you went on with your dad. Because whenever they were going to these different mountains to ski, it's like five hours away from wherever they are. And on the drive, he would always tell the same stories that his dad would tell him. But then his son was like, tell me about your dad. Like, you tell me your stories. Mm-hmm. And this kid is six. He had asked Norman, like, what happened in the airplane crash? Like, tell me about what happened. And so he tells him in kind of like a six-year-old level, right? right? Like, this is what happened. His son is like, you know, you should really write a book about that. And actually, he'd always been kind of interested in writing, and he had written some short stories already. So he did write a book about his experience. And the title of his book is Crazy for the Storm, A Memoir of Survival. And he recounts the whole thing. And actually, the way that it's written is like every other chapter is kind of about his life growing up with his dad. And every other chapter is about the crash. So it kind of goes goes, back and forth. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't have time to read it before this. What year was it published? 2009. And it was a bestseller. He said, I think that unconsciously, I didn't write the story sooner because I didn't have both sides of the story, which is I wasn't a father yet. And I thought, this is the time. He wanted to return to the crash site before he wrote the book and kind of not like relive the horror of like, (laughs) but like he wanted to go and get in touch with that site and kind of feel some feelings about it before he wrote the book. So he actually went back there. I think it was 2007, 2006 or 2007, where he went back. He actually went in the summer to hike up and try to find the crash site. Which is also just what Julianne Cope did. Yeah. She went back to the crash site. It's the thing, man. He ended up getting a copy of the crash report. I forget what it's called, but like basically the report of the crash. It turns out that it was a mix of things that caused the plane to crash. One was that the plane wasn't powerful enough to make it over in that weather. The bad weather obviously was a huge factor. And then there was apparently bad planning on the part of the pilot to not use, I guess, a different plane. Right. So those those three factors were, you know, what caused this whole thing to happen. Mm-hmm. It's funny, when he actually goes back to visit the site, the crash mm-hmm. site, he's sitting at the bottom of the mountain, like there's the meadow and everything, and he, he's sitting at this kind of like, it's not a parking lot, it's just like a dirt area, and he's at the base of what looks like a trail, and this camper puck pulls up. It's like early morning. He's the only one there. This camper truck pulls up. This woman gets out. She's got a bunch of dogs and they're the only ones. And she's like a little bit younger. And he's like, hey, I'm looking for the Chapman Ranch. And she's like, 
are you the boy from the airplane crash? Oh, weird. And he was like, what? <laughs> like, that's so weird. Mm-hmm. Uh, turns out that she worked for Bob Chapman, who was the dad. Actually, he was very sick and he was passing away. He was like on his deathbed. Mm. And he was kind of going in and out of consciousness. And he was having these vivid dreams, like waking dreams. And he would sit up and be like, we have to go get the father from the mountain. The boy is here. Like oh, talking wow. about that whole ordeal. And so she, over the time that she was working there and I guess, hearing him talk about this she learned about what had happened she saw pictures of him and he still kind of looks like you know he still has like the long blonde hair and kind of you know surfery look when she saw him she's like she just knew that it was (sighs) him so weird yeah and so she took him back to the ranch and he got to meet pat and glenn again glenn was still working there at the farm or the ranch that was the one that carried him that was the one that carried Mm -hmm. him yeah and glenn actually walked him up part of the way and they they had like walkie talkies to communicate while he was hiking up there he made it to the crash site and he actually went up there a, a few times but he said the first time he made it to the crash site he was alone it's like a very steep shale and he was working his way up on all fours and he looks over and he sees this tree and he just knows immediately that's where we crashed that's the tree that the wing was propped up on wow he notices some pieces of hard plastic and they're red and white they're just like from the plane and as he's kind of going down to the bottom part of where the crash would have been he actually finds a seat frame and he says it's a really intense moment because he feels like that's the seat frame that his dad was sitting in when the plane crashed and he said he he stayed up there and he talked to his father and thanked him for everything, for giving him the tools and resources to make it out of that day. Mm-hmm. And he kept kind of tripping out at how steep and rugged the terrain was. Even the rescue guys couldn't navigate the chute. He could, that's what he called it, the ice chute. And he started to realize that like, holy shit, I was 11 and I survived this. And I was only 11 years old. And these like adults who are professional rescuers mm-hmm. couldn't do it. It was difficult. And I guess he had thought like, you know, he never really realized, but that he really had tapped into this survival mode of just like, I have to get this done. I can't stop. I have to go. I have to go. Um, he said the writing the book was cathartic, but not pleasant. Um, he was able to really look at this tragic, scary, brutal situation and give it beauty and fulfillment and transform it into a way that was kind of a healing moment for him and gave that story a different kind of energy than than what it had been for most of his life. Wow. He has an eight-year-old daughter now, too. And he takes his kids skiing all the time. He was like, my eight-year-old, she's a firecracker. She loves to do like all these. She's like really into it. She loves going out and, and having these adventures. You know, she needs that extra energy let out. He sees that his kids are in their best places when they're out in the water or skiing and doing stuff with them is the best. And he wrote an article. I thought this was great. He actually just um, in 2010, there was a Dutch boy and I didn't read this story, but this Dutch boy, Ruben Van also he was a sole survivor of a horrific plane crash in Libya. It was like 100 people died in this plane. He was the only one, like his mm. whole family. Oh, my gosh. And so he actually wrote this article, um, Norman did, I think it was in the LA Times, called From One Crash Survivor to Another. He talks about how... His godmother, the I mentioned her in the beginning of the story, how he would go see her when he was having hard times. Right, right. And that that really helped him. And she allowed him to grieve at his own pace. And that he had always wished, you know, when he got later in life, he had wished that therapy was more accepted when he was younger. That surfing really helped him. But that once he got therapy, it was like the missing piece of the puzzle. And so he's kind of giving advice to this nine-year-old boy who survived this crash. Like, hey, it's okay to get therapy. It's okay to grieve it's okay to feel these ways you're gonna feel a lot of feelings and it's okay like i've been through it he said that going outside still makes him feel healthy and good like doing all these activities it's really great but doing it with his kids how his dad did with him quote it's the most beautiful thing the ultimate thing in life yes exactly that's what i was saying is he you know i'm sure his dad was way hardcore and Mm -hmm. uh you know had him get up early and do all these things but how cool is that i just forced my kids to clean the house i know extreme dusting (laughs) that's exactly what i'm like extreme anger and rage (laughs) put away your barbies if i step on one more lego piece (laughs) it's like oh man i mean we you know we get out we do stuff no it makes me it makes me want to like it's like we have a kayak right and i'm always like oh we gotta rent another kayak so we can go out together it's like just i need to do that like get it done already gotta do the things yeah i know well we get caught up in so many other day-to-day things that Mm -hmm. 
You need to make that time. We got to make the time. Kind laundry detergent sheets are a completely zero waste laundry detergent and an eco-friendly alternative to the traditional liquid and powder detergents in the market. It has 100% recyclable packaging and dramatically smaller eco footprint on the environment and helps you lighten your load on the planet. The strong cleaning power of Kind's biodegradable laundry detergent comes from a completely plant-derived formula, which is super cool. This means it's also gentler and a safe alternative to synthetic chemical-based detergents for you and your family. There's four simple non-toxic ingredients. So no more skin irritation or allergies with their 100% non-toxic laundry detergent, making it safer for newborn babies and those with sensitive skin. Also, it's biodegradable. So unlike many other green options on the market, there's absolutely no plastic waste. There's also no mess. You can take a load off laundry and say goodbye to carrying those heavy laundry detergent jugs and fumbling with those hard to open plastic caps. And it's just way safer. So it's really waste-free. It dissolves easily and it cleans great. I use them. I love it. They're also pre-cut and pre-measured. So you don't have to like kind of eyeball it, which, oh man, so yeah. many years of eyeballing it. I've probably it. overused so much soap. It's crazy. Mm-hmm. It also saves space. You know, as you know, Megan, I'm really trying so hard to be like clutter-free in my house. This is one more thing to cut back on some of the clutter. It's great. Also, Jen, you can travel with them. I know we're getting maybe back into being able to travel again. I can't wait. If you're taking a staycation, this would be an easy alternative to carrying around one of those little boxes of like Mm -hmm. vacation soap that irritates your skin. And no liquid, so they're not going to take it away from you. And one thing I really like about their website is that they take the time to see how much detergent you would really need for your family. So if you're a family of one to two folks, three to four or five or more, they can tell you how many boxes a year you're going to need. They have fragrance free for people who don't want their things to have a certain smell to them. But they also have an ocean breeze detergent. I'm one that I like a little fresh ocean breeze smell to my clothes. Also, you're going to save money. It's 25 cents per load and you're going to save 12 to 18 plastic containers a year that's up to 1530 in a lifetime so just head on over to our website on the sponsor page and click the link for kind laundry and once you're there you can use the code kless10 and you'll get 10 percent off your first order so go check it out i have an organization to support Yay! Let's hear it. Again, I feel like this is another situation where it's like, there's not, in this particular story, what are we going to support exactly for, you know, animals? Because it's just kind of a general area that they were, and he was in this, like, it was the storm and all these things that kind of affected it. What about that leather tree? (laughs) I want to support that. Well, there's a way you can, Jen. Oh, let's let's hear Uh, it. This is a little bit indirect, if you will. But uh, it's the California Community Foundation's Wildfire Recovery Fund. Okay. So California is this, I just read an article the other day about how 2021 is hotter than it was last year. It's drier than it was oh, last boy. year. And the fire season has already started in California. Oh, no. Yeah. It's already started. The California Community Foundation's Wildlife Recovery Fund supports intermediate and long-term recovery efforts for major California wildfires, as well as preparedness efforts. Since 2003, the fund has granted more than $24 million to support relief and recovery efforts in the aftermath of devastating California wildfires. There's a lot of different things that they support. They support like folks who lose everything from the fires. Mm-hmm. They also support wildlife recovery. They do community uh, enrichment. Uh, they do some work in immigration as well, like helping immigrants get settled. And mm-hmm. I mean, there's like a ton of stuff. Uh, but specifically, I thought this was a good organization because they talk about wildfires and because the San Gabriel Mountains are having a lot of problems with erosion mm-hmm. and regrowth and all of that. So you go to their site and you can donate directly. The site is www.calfund.org, calfund.org. Good stuff. That is good. It'll be on our uh, on our site. I know the story was like a little, it had like a little half downer, but also I feel like very inspiring. What would you do if you crashed, this time not into the Amazon, right, right. but into the side of a snowy mountain? Well, I mean, definitely we, the vans. I mean, and what a cool kid 
I know, right? Because, I mean, all the cool kids wore the Vans. I could just see him like the 70s kid with his long blonde yeah, hair wearing and his, his like little button up short sleeve shirt. He's like a some skier. Chinos. He's, a, he's a surfer. I mean, yeah. this kid is cool as hell. Yeah, he is. He survived a plane crash, climbed down a mountain, mm-hmm. tried to rescue a grown ass, you know, adult woman. It was not his fault, you know, no. that she she was injured. He like, did she, the best he could. Yeah. I yeah. mean, just the fact that he did all those things. Mm-hmm. He's a badass. I'm going to listen to this book. See if I can learn yeah. something in my, as I'm getting <laughs> old and <laughs> need to learn some new badassery. Right. As far as, you know, what you would have in your emergency preparedness kit for this type of situation. You know, it's always hard when we, we tell these like, st- you know, stories that are sad or tragic mm-hmm. or yeah. heroic or you know, whatever. Yeah, they're never. We don't want to make light. Of we don't this. want to diminish the gravitas. But this is where we kind of get silly because we want to end on a light note. I think that I would want to have with me, mm-hmm. hopefully on the plane or on speed dial, or just you know, or I could be trained myself as a certified raptorist <laughs> or falconer. Falconer, right? Right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Although I like the the Raptorist. Raptorist certification. Yes. So that I could like, caca, like some (laughs) golden, giant golden eagle. Maybe all California uh, condor. Those are big, right? Or something like uh, Lord of the Rings style. Yes. To come and just lift me out of the situation. That sounds amazing. And transfer me to safety. What were they called, Megan? Giant ass eagles. They're just called the eagles. Gandalf Gandalf was like... Eagles. Gandalf was like whispered to a moth. He was like, and then the moth flew away, and then the eagles showed up, and they were like the eagles. Not like the eagles. Not the band. Not, not like Don Henley. Desperado. <laughs> You're like, no, not that eagles. God damn it. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think they're just like called the eagles. I and it's like every Lord of the Rings fan is like, why don't they just freaking? I mean, it's an argument people have on Reddit. I've read them all. Really? You oh, read those? Yes. What? Well, because I'm interested. I You just nerded out I've big always, time. <laughs> I've always wanted to know, why didn't they just take Frodo, fly him over the top of Mount Doom, and he just drops the ring straight in? I mean, like, why do we have to go through this whole saga? But I mean, then, also, the saga is great. So. But yeah, there would be no movie. Well, somehow the <laughs> bad guy would like stop all that business. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think he had to be. He there had would to be do a thing. it. Yeah. 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 What was the bad guy? Sauron. Oh, yeah. Sauron. I haven't seen those movies in a long time. Sauron. I feel like Sauron. you watch them a lot more. I watch them a lot. Because you have a 12 year old kid. Yeah, it's true. That he's just really into it. My kids, because I have a five year old, she gets scared. Yeah, easily. it's too much for her. She's just like, nope, nope, nope. And my older one, she's she's just not getting into it. Like, it's hard for me to get past the first, like, two Harry Potters. Right. Because they get scared. Oh, man. And we're, I'm like, come on. And we're like Harry Potter marathon every year. <laughs> every Christmas. <laughs> but I started him really, really young. I probably showed him those movies too early. Probably. But it's okay. I was like, don't worry about it. Don't look at it. It's fine. It's fine. Just nightmares. So, yeah. <laughs> so, I guess we just get Gandalf, the raptorist, to call us. <laughs> A giant ass eagle. Giant ass eagle. That's amazing. To lift me to safety. I mean, this kid was super badass. I feel like he he's an awesome guy. He's a great dad. Yeah. I did want to mention that he does have an Instagram. We do follow him. We can only hope for another moment like Mauro Prosperi following us. Dream big. Dream big. Um, his Instagram is crazy for the storm, all one word, just like the title of his book. And it's super cute. His description is surfer, skier, adventurer, New York Times, bestselling author, father of two fantastic kids, happily married to a beautiful woman. Oh, wow. Yeah. He sounds like an awesome guy. Way to have an awesome life, Norman. For realsies. He also has written a couple other books, so you should go check those out. I'm sure wherever his dad is, he's very proud. Absolutely. Well, that was a great story. It was inspiring. And it kind of, I feel like we could all take something like any of us, you know, especially those out there that have kids or plan to have kids or Mm -hmm. whatever, or take your niece or nephew or get involved in some kid's life and take them outside. Yeah. And get a, like, teach them some stuff. And maybe you'll learn some stuff too. Well, and just making those connections with people. Yeah. That's nice. And nature is such a great way to connect with people. So I guess until next time. Don't die out there. Bye. Bye.